This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Dagena Dor, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we have the pleasure to be able to talk to Dr. Mandine Williams about her new book, Ishikawa Sanchilo's Geographical Imagination, Transnational Anarchism and the Reconfiguration of Everyday Life in Early 20th Century Japan, published by the Leiden University Press in 2020. Dr. Willems, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Um, I wonder if we can begin the interview with a little bit of self-introduction. Can you say a few words about yourself and how you became interested in East Asian studies and particularly in modern Japan? Well, um, I am now a lecturer in Japanese history at the University of East Anglia in the UK. And I have been there for the past five years, but I have followed a somewhat unusual path to academia. I'm originally from Belgium, and um, after graduating from university with a law degree there, I decided to see the world, um, as you do sometimes when you're born in a small country. And so I went east, and I ended up in Japan, a little bit by chance, a little bit by intent. And it feels like it was yesterday, actually, that I took one of these flights that stopped in Anchorage, Alaska, on the way to Tokyo. But that was, in fact, over 30 years ago. But once there, I enrolled in the Japanese language course at KU University, then did a few odd jobs, translation, language teaching, and even stockbroking for a while. Um, But my main activity while in Japan, however, was journalism. I worked as a foreign correspondent for a Belgian newspaper, then worked freelance for overseas and local magazines and newspapers in English, French, and Japanese for about 15 years. But then for for family reasons, I came back to Europe and settled in the UK, uh, more precisely in Oxford, And I have to say, I miss Japan so much that I decided to go back to studying. So I did first an MSc in Japanese studies at the Nissan Institute for Japanese Studies in Oxford. And then I went went on to do the the PhD in the the modern history of Japan. I have to say it was intense going back to studying after all these years. For example, learning and relearning kanji every day sitting for exams, eventually writing my PhD thesis. But uh, I also found accelerating to do in-depth research on topics I had only skimmed over 
when I worked as a journalist. So my interest in modern Japan comes from having lived there for several years uh, and never having been able to let go of Japan once I was back in Europe. I think that all the places I had visited, the language I had learned, all the people I had interviewed as a journalist needed to crystallize into something more solid. And going back to academia helped me to better understand not only what Japan was about, but also what Japan meant for me. Uh, and it so happened that my supervisor in Oxford, Sho Konishi, is an intellectual and cultural historian of modern Japan. Ever since my undergraduate degree, I have been interested in political thought, something that is very germane to the study of law. And so you could say that I had an affinity with intellectual history. And it all went for there. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. It's always really fascinating to kind of hear about how scholars um, in different fields came to their um, subjects of study and how your rich kind of backgrounds and experiences inform your studies and, and your monographs, right? Your books later. So thank you for sharing that. Um, before we go into the book, um, can you maybe tell us a little bit about how you came to write it? Uh, what was the story behind the project? Well, my book, so Ishikawa Sanshiro's Geographical Imagination, is based on my PhD thesis, um, which itself is an extension of my MSc dissertation. Uh, when it came to choose a topic at the time, uh, I thought that it made sense to use my ability to speak French, which is my native language, as one angle of approach to Japan's modern period. You know, there's this sense that you want to bring something a little bit new, a little bit different to the, the historical studies. So um, as we know, during Japan's modern period, intellectual connections between Japan and Europe expanded tremendously. And there have been a vast number of studies done about the mutual exchanges between Japan and France uh, in this case. But they mostly address official exchanges, for example, in the diplomatic, legal, military or economic spheres. And the scholars have also, of course, explored mutual influences in the artistic sphere. But I wanted to focus on the historical figure that was, um, what should I say, under the radar, someone who was not necessarily recognized in institutional or official circles, and who perhaps could tell us something interesting about Japan's modern period. And I ended up exploring the life and ideas of Ishikawa Sanchiro, uh, who was a political dissenter, who had traveled to France and Belgium, who spoke the language, uh, wrote it, and drew inspiration from the places he had visited. So, yeah, that's the story. <laughs> Great. Yeah, we'll be um, listening to more stories and more details about this really interesting um, figure very soon. Um, but for those of our listeners who might not be very familiar with the central figure of the book, Ishikawa Sanshilo, uh, who has also been called the conscience of Japan or Nihon no Ryoshin, can you please tell us um, something, uh, give us a little brief introduction about this early 20th century anarchist thinker and activist? Hmm. Well, I think that in order to answer this question, we should first reconsider a little bit what anarchism is about, because it's a very loaded term. 
And, and most people assume that anarchism is a system of thought that can only be implemented through violent acts. And there's this conventional understanding that an anarchist is by definition a terrorist. And I will certainly not deny that uh, historically many violent acts have been committed in the name of anarchism. But there also exists a form of non-violent anarchism. And it's, it is more of a, an, an outlook on the world, um, a mindset. And it is premised on the understanding that socio-political organization could and should develop without relying on state authority and control and without, in fact, any form of hierarchical relationship between people. So socio-political organization then must depend on cooperation. And as I said, it's a political model as well as a worldview. So Ishikawa shared these beliefs and... um, It is in that sense that he was an anarchist thinker and activist. He was born in 1876, so uh, less than 10 years after the Meiji Revolution, and died in 1956. Thus, he lived a long life during a period characterized by Japan's drive to modernize and the formation uh, as a strong nation-state. And... um, As an intellectual, I mean, he was a journalist and an author, Ishikawa opposed Japan's embrace of competition on the international stage. As an activist, he was on the side of the underdog. Uh, He was particularly preoccupied by the plight of the peasantry and, for example, uh, small tenant farmers who had become victims of pollution. And he was concerned by the unfettered exploitation of the natural environment. Um, so he was concerned about all sorts of um, miseries, I would say, of the of modernization. Um, and, and to return to your question, Ishikawa has been hailed as the conscience of Japan because he mostly held firm against the ravaging ideological currents of his time. And I mean, social Darwinism, Bolshevism, racial discrimination, and uh, amongst others, uh, right-wing radicalism. And, and you could say that the anarchist strand Ishikawa represented for over five decades acted as not only a creative force of social change, but also a bulwark against authoritarianism. And um, moreover, because of the attention paid to the man-nature relationship, uh, his anarchism provided the channel of uh, an ecological ecological critique and during the war he was also one of the few intellectuals who was able to hold his ground remaining true to his beliefs until the end and staying clear of the kind of ideological conversion to which so many of his fellow lefting leftist uh, intellectuals submitted Hmm. Yeah, and the way you approach um, this figure, uh, Ishikawa Sanchilo, in the book is very interesting too. So instead of telling another story about how an Asian intellectual uh, was inspired by Western radical thought and then challenged the status quo in his own cultural context, uh, your book provides a very different perspective to this conventional narrative of one-way diffusion of European ideas. So instead, your book stresses the transnational 
informal and polymorphic aspects of global anarchism that Ishikawa was a part of. Uh, so can you tell us more about this approach? How does it help us to understand Japanese anarchism in the early 20th century, uh, you know, in a time marked by nationalism, imperialism, and even militarism? Mm, well, what is important to keep in mind first is that um, anarchism, as understood by Ishikawa and his friends, was not just about political thought or the, the politics of dissent. And rather, it addressed all facets of human experience, so religious, philosophical, scientific, economic, artistic. And it is about these various facets that a transnational dialogue developed over the years and in which Japanese dissenters, like Ishikawa, took part. And of course, all were aware of the roots of European anarchism and the contribution of such thinkers uh, as Charles Fourier, uh, Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, and uh, Michael Bakunin, um, to to name a few, these contributors to the formation of anarchist thought. But... um, This was not the whole story. In the early 20th century, Japanese anarchists like Ishikawa emphasized this holistic, all-encompassing dimension of their beliefs. Anarchism had to provide a template for social progress that did not only address class struggle, but considered the development of the individual in all their potential, in all spheres of lived experience. And The other thing is that rather than circulating via official institutions of knowledge, such as universities or or even museums, this kind of dialogue, this transnational dialogue between Japanese and Western radicals took place through individual connections, through, for example, the informal network which connected European anarchists, such as Paul Reclus, who is the nephew of Elisée Reclus in Belgium and France, Edward Carpenter in England, Ishikawa Sanshiro in Japan, Li Shizen in China, and uh, Joseph Ishil in North America. And um, by the way, I refer to all these people in, in the book and showing how they uh, communicated. People traveled and wrote letters and pro- postcards. Uh, they produced makeshift uh, pamphlets and periodicals that crossed oceans and continents. So... Um, when I, I say that Ishikawa's anarchism was just was not just the result of a one-way diffusion from west to east, it is also um, because every occurrence of this transnational dialogue that developed uh, in, in the way I described considered both foreign imports and indigenous traditions. I mean, in the case of Ishikawa, like many of his uh, generation, he was very well-read and much aware of Western currents of thought, in addition to his own intellectual traditions. Just um, perusing his library and notes makes clear that he was familiar not only with Chinese and Japanese classics, but also, to some extent, uh, Greek philosophy, French political thought and avant-garde theatre, for example, English social reformism, and Russian revolutionary revolutionary ideas, just to, to name a few. So, He was constantly seeking commonalities between various intellectual traditions. So, for example, his preoccupations about the plight of the peasantry would make him refer to Leo Tolstoy and the Ukrainian revolutionary Nestor Makhno, for example, 
at the same time as he would refer to the early modern thinker um, Andu Shoiki, the Japanese, and the peasant martyr Sakura Sogoro, for example, who had been executed for pleading relief on behalf of farmers in the early 17th century. And um, that is why it is so interesting to locate similarities between the conception of revolutionary practices among anarchists in early 20th century Japan and this conception among uh, European anarchists with whom they corresponded. For all of them, uh, nationalism, imperialism and militarism represented the most dangerous trends of the times. But rather than relying on violent insurrection to counter these trends, they considered that the nurturing of a transnational anarchist network through all these unofficial, sometimes clandestine means of communication I mentioned earlier, was essential for the realization of the anarchist project. So the very existence of their network offered one response to what they perceived as pressing challenges to freedom and equality. And of course, this kind of response was weakened and obscured obscured, sorry, by the, the pervasiveness of Marxism as a counter-ideology. Um, but that, that's an, an entire different um, study that should be done, actually. Yeah, thank you. It seems that one of the major um, agendas of, of, these, of the informal um, network of anarchists across the globe was humanizing Right, um, politics and also what was going on in the world. And so chapter one discusses um, one part of that. So humanizing science in modern Japan is the title. And it looks at how Japanese thinkers responded to the Meiji period's capitalist and industrial transformations with um, this idea of a grassroots geography um, that aimed to rehumanize science. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about this idea? What is this grassroots geography and what did it envision for modern Japan that's going through these capitalism industrial transformations? Mm, so the, the question that motivated the writing of this chapter has to do with Ishikawa's interest in um, Elysée Reclus' human geography. So Elysée Reclus, the French a geographer and anarchist of the second half of the 19th century. So when uh, Ishikawa traveled to Europe in 1913, he was fleeing censorship and oppression at home. He ended up first in Belgium and then in France, living with the family of Paul Reclus, who was the nephew and professional heir of Élysée Reclus. Uh, Élysée, by the way, had been a good friend of Russian anarchist Peter Kropotkin, and like him, he was a geographer. And when Ishikawa returned to Japan in 1920, he had familiarized himself with the geographical works of Elysée, which, by the way, were, uh, Elysée was extremely prolific. But uh, Ishikawa spent the rest of his life translating Elysée's magnum opus on human geography, a six-volume treatise called Man and the Earth, into Japanese. In fact, the first volume was published in translation in the early 1930s, and Ishikawa kept working at it until he died. So I wonder why Ishikawa was so keen to do this. I mean, what kind of affinity did Japanese critics of the process of modernization 
fine in reclusion geography? And the answer is, I mean, I argue that geographical thought was always at the forefront of thinking about people's relationship with the earth. The discipline of geography provided an intellectual framework for thinking about modernization. And this approach had particular relevance during the Meiji period, which witnessed such a transformation of the man-nature relationship and a degradation of the physical environment. Science then, the, the kind of science that sustained the country's development as an industrial nation, appeared to intellectuals like Ishikawa and a circle of like-minded thinkers as overly mechanized. It was, in their view, a science that privileged, for example, engineering to agronomy when trying to solve the pollution problems in the context of the over-exploitation of the Ashio copper mine at the turn of the century. It was a science that favored physical over human geography in the building of Japan as a modern state. And this tended to obscure people's concrete activities in relation to their physical environments. In fact, it tended to essentialize the people as an abstract entity. So the people were a nation uh, in pursuit of development and material progress, but to the detriment of the existence of each individual and their specific talent and social contribution. So the grassroots geographers, as I have called them, were those intellectuals of the Meiji period who, although they did not belong to formal academic institutions, developed a form of geographical knowledge that re-examined and revalued the the man-nature relationship. Uh, And I mentioned people like Tanaka Shozo, who studied the human impact of the pollution of rivers in geographical terms or someone like Makiguchi Tsunesaburo, who was concerned about people's attachment to places and uh, wrote a thousand-page textbook called The Geography of Human Life. And even someone like uh, Uchimura Kanzo, uh, author of a geographical treatise called Man in the Earth, uh, by the way, just like Elise Reclu, whose interest in the discipline of human geography was in part motivated by ecological concerns, so I think that in each case, these intellectuals were trying to counter this over-technical and mechanistic dimension of science encouraged by the Meiji leaders. And in that sense, the grassroots geographers um, engaged in the rehumanizing of science. At least that's my perception or my interpretation. And I think that this tradition of grassroots human geography during the Meiji period gave Ishikawa an intellectual lineage Uh, that validated his own interest in reclusion uh, geography later on. That's what this chapter is about. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. 
Thank you. And, and speaking about、um, Ishikawa's intellectual lineage,、um, the second chapter kind of talks about how late Meiji period activists,、um, such as Tanaka Shozo、um, and other activists that you just mentioned briefly,、um, had right, the kinds of impacts and influences they had on Ishikawa's、um, thinking and also his political、um, envisionings. Um, so, this tra- second chapter is entitled Late Meiji Radicals and the Formation of a Geographical Imagination.、Um, so, what were the main concerns of the Japanese activists at the time,、um, such as Tanaka Shozo, and what kinds of social change were they trying to bring about in society?、Um, well, we're talking here about the early years of the 20th century when a group of left wing intellectuals rallied. To、uh, vocally oppose the looming Russo Japanese war by establishing the People's Society and the People's Newspaper, so the、uh, Heimin Shai and the Heimin Shinbun.、Uh, it was 1903, and the first time in Japan that socialist ideas crystallized into a press medium. One of the members of the group was Kotoku Shusui, a well known figure of Japanese anarchism. Who was executed in 1911 in the context of the high treason incident, the alleged plot to assassinate Emperor Meiji. And he's remembered as a prominent victim of government oppression against left wing activism. For Ishikawa, the build up of, to the、uh, Russo Japanese War marked the start of his participation in the public sphere. And as a self proclaimed、uh, socialist, He was concerned with Japan's rising aggressivity on the international stage, but he also denounced the plight of those left behind by modernization. So, from the viewpoint of the historian, the late Meiji socialist period is revealing of the deepening gulf between the city and the countryside. At the time, about two thirds of Japan's active population were still engaged in primary industries. And so the perception was that farmers, especially small tenant farmers, were the first casualties of modernization. They were burdened with heavy taxes while their men, and that is productive labor, of course, were sent to war. And this encouraged a number of activists to gear their efforts towards improving the condition of poor rural dwellers. And Ishikawa was one of them. With other radicals, he shared the vocabulary of social transformation that identified the countryside as a site of potential liberation. And what I show in this chapter is that socialist ideas in the early 20th century in Japan must be considered in light of this urban rural split. There were two groups concerned with two different situations urban proletariat on the one hand, and lower class farmers. On the other hand, and at the same time, the focus on the condition of rural areas put at the, at the forefront cases of、uh, environmental damage and specifically the pollution incident related to the overexploitation of the Ashio copper mine. The figure of Tanaka Shozo, who campaigned for the rights of the villagers affected by the pollution. Occupies an important place in the environmental and intellectual history of the Meiji era. But what we must note about Tanaka is that he had been born before the Meiji Restoration. He had developed a philosophy of the man nature interaction that drew from these pre Meiji intellectual influences, including Neo Confucianism. 
Ishikawa's encounter with Tanaka Shozo was transformative. And with Tanaka, he spent amongst the villagers, he spent time amongst the villagers uh, affected by pollution and government efforts to expropriate them for their, from their land. And seeing firsthand this degradation of the land and misery of rural dwellers motivated Ishikawa to develop his own environmental slash ecological vision. And the, the experience also made him reflect on the potential of daily life activism, that is the possibility of imparting social change through the practices of everyday life, as opposed to violent insurrection. And I think that the environmental preoccupations of the late Meiji socialists who focused on rural problems were genuine, and they provided the seeds of the environmental activism as it developed in the course of the following decades. And unfortunately, in 1910, many of the uh, many of these um, leftist thinkers in Japan were persecuted um, after the Great Treason Incident. Um, and following that, Ishikawa went into exile in Europe and went to places like France and Belgium that you mentioned. Um, and this is sort of the content of the third chapter entitled Breaking Boundaries. Um, so what kinds of thinkers and activists did Ishikawa meet in Europe and what kinds of concerns were shared Amongst them, did they also share similar concerns, like they did, well, like he did with the thinkers in Japan? Um, so, as you say, this chapter covers Ishikawa's years of self-imposed exile in Europe. And so, when he left Japan in March 1913, he, he was literally fleeing for his life. He had no concrete plan about where and how to live and could only rely on his wits and hope that a transnational network of anarchist sympathizers would help to support him. And the outbreak of the First World War during the stay in Brussels further jeopardized his chances of survival. So in this chapter, I trace Ishikawa's travels and encounters, many of them by chance, you know, that happened by chance and contingencies, and what they meant for his conception of anarchism and anarchist activism. Um, Ishikawa, as a founding member of the People's Newspaper in 1903, was not entirely unknown in Europe, at least in uh, anarchist circles. So his name had already been circulating there, notably uh, at the time of the high treason incident. But his stay in Europe was, amongst other things, um, marked by his meeting with philosopher a social reformer and anarchist sympathizer, Edward Carpenter, and some of his friends. And looking at their correspondence, diaries, and memoirs, what becomes apparent is the existence of intellectual zones of convergence between Ishikawa and European thinkers and activists. At least that, those are the ones that I, I try to identify. And these zones related to religious, political, and philosophical thought, amongst others, highlighting how much a shared worldview drew on both Western and Eastern traditions and dependent on the blurring of knowledge categories. So meeting Carpenter was an occasion, for example, to reflect on the spiritual dimension of political activism. Both Carpenter and Ishikawa at various stages of their life uh, considered the possibilities of acquiring knowledge via non-rational modes of thinking. So Ishikawa talked about the revelatory experience of Zen meditation as a process of political activism. Uh, Carpenter, on the other hand, 
advocated the notion of cosmic consciousness as a key to the attainment of genuine democratic ideals. So you may, of course, consider that this refers to no more than the ramblings of intellectuals, but in fact, both men were concerned with similar perceptions of modernity as something that was over-reliant on scientific rationality, and they were keen to comprehend the world and social action via alternative modes of thought. And uh, Ishikawa's meeting with French anarchists in Belgium and France was the occasion to participate in a different kind of political activism, one that directly contributed to the split of the European anarchist movement during the First World War. This was 1916, when discussions in some anarchist uh, circles concerned the the possible annexation of Belgium if France and England failed to defeat Germany. And soon Ishikawa signed with his friend Paul Reclus the so-called Manifesto of the Sixteen, together with uh, several other prominent figures of the European anarchist movement. The Manifesto was unashamedly pro-entente, advocating resistance against Germany, and of course in blatant contradiction with the conventional anarchist ideology of non-interventionism in imperialist wars. The manifesto, however, immediately attracted the condemnation of the London International Anarchist Group, thereby initiating an irreversible, sorry, irreversible split in the movement. And for Ishikawa, it was meaningful in the sense that he remained in contact with many of the signatories of the manifesto until well after his return to Japan. Uh, returning to the title of the chapter, Crossing Boundaries, um, it is worth emphasizing how much the creation and nurturing of transnational contacts between these different people located in different places was part and parcel of the anarchist project at the time. It meant the creation of bonds of solidarity and the sharing of a specific mindset that would ultimately bring about a more equal and non-hierarchical social order. And the boundaries that were crossed were not only territorial, they were also conceptual. Eastern and Western radicals with whom Ishikawa associated shared the belief that social progress depended on spiritual as well as political change. Fascinating, yeah. And after he returns back to Japan later, um, he disseminates this concept of domin seigatsu or uh, life of the people of the earth, right? This kind of grounded idea of living. And this is explored in chapter four of your book. Um, so please tell us more about the socio-political idea of domin seigatsu that Ishikawa came up with after his travels um, from Europe. What was Ishikawa trying to achieve through this idea and how was this idea kind of received on the ground by other Japanese people in the 1920s? Um, so Ishikawa returned to Japan in 1920 and proceeded to disseminate this concept of domin seikatsu. Um, and this was the model of socio-political organization he had articulated while in exile. Domin is literally the person or people of the earth and seikatsu means daily life. And this strategy for non-violent social transformation through the practices of daily life owed its inspiration in part to reclusion geography, while it also participated in the cultural trend of return to the land that characterized the period um, 
Domin Sekatsu was premised on the idea that each individual's direct engagement with the forces of production and the creation of bonds of solidarity between all would ultimately bring about social change. The nurturing of relations of solidarity, or to borrow Kropotkin's, Kropotkin's terminology, mutual aid, was essential for this model of socio-political organization to succeed, and everyday solidarity acted as a lever of social transformation, meaning within this conception, which would ensure a kind of rhizomatic dispersal into society that is not institutionally driven, but somehow guided by organic development. And of course, there was a good dose of utopian thinking behind such a scheme, and it ultimately failed to attract enough attention. But it is interesting, at least at two levels. Well, first, because Ishikawa himself engaged in his own Domin Seketsu, he settled in a small commune in the suburbs of Tokyo, where he cultivated a plot of land and partly lived of it. And by the way, when he was in France, he did spend four, uh, almost uh, five years uh, cultivating the land in the family with the family of Paul Reclus. So he had an experience. But it was his status back in Japan as a self-sufficient domain, which he maintained throughout the war, that allowed him as an intellectual to refuse government rationing tickets and withstand called for ideological conversion. So that was one aspect. The, the second interesting aspect is the way Ishikawa meant to adapt Doming Seigatsu to the progressive socio-political landscape of 1920s Japan. As a convention and anarchist construct, Domin Seigatsu required the absence of any exploitative relationship, but it still implied a sense of allegiance to the organizational power of smaller units, such as cooperatives, with, which were expanding at the time, and they were the conduit through which solidarity materialized. In the 1920s, Ishikawa's conception fitted into a framework of free consumers, unions, and producers' cooperatives. His vision called for workers to turn their back on parliamentary and political party methods and shoulder all social organizations themselves through unions that regulated production and distribution. The realization of Domin Sekatsu was expected to create an infinitely extensible web of cooperative relations, which he called Fukushiki Mojo Soshiki, so a system of interrelated networks that linked together a multiplicity of productive nodes and embodied social liberation. If we consider this in a more spatial or rather geographical perspective, it really looks like a loose federation of small productive units, all interrelated to each other. So you you can somehow visualize these um, units linked together in an organic fashion, so no central axis. At a purely conceptual level, Domin Segatsu represented a way to reclaim individual agency from the constraining frameworks of both inevitable progress and a Marxist conception of history. And sadly, the intellectual dominance of the latter in left-wing circles had the effect of obscuring the merits of a scheme such as Ishikawa's. But one could say that it also mostly obscured his presence in the historiography of modern Japan. Hmm. 
And in chapter five, standing on the earth,、uh, we turn our attention to the unfolding of one of these, I guess, networks or organizations. So the Noming Chichikai, a network of farmer self-governing councils in the mid 1920s.、Um, so here in the book, you remind us that this organization was meant to give Domin Sega to a collective embodiment and encourage farmers to practice self-reliance. But unfortunately, it seems that this farmer solidarity. Um, that、uh, Ishikawa envisions eventually fail to materialize.、Um, what were the reasons for this?、Mm, so the establishment of the Nomin Jichikai should be understood in the context of the unrest and discontent that was gradually spreading through Japan's rural areas during the 1920s. Large landowners, moneylenders, and merchants had acquired a growing influence in the agricultural sector. To the detriment of small landholders, and often forced by a crisis or、uh, another into tenant or semi-tenant status, the, the small landholders. So the rural-urban split that preoccupied some of the late Meiji socialists had grown deeper during the Taisho period, and now collective action appeared as one answer to the mounting tensions. So Ishikawa's Nomin Jichikai. Which he set up with a few friends was meant to empower farm- farmers. It encouraged self-reliance while connecting farmers to each other via a network, a na- nationwide network of small independent councils. And the scheme was meant to avoid state control as well as the oppressive power of organized national unionism. So the Nomin Jichikai was launched in 1925. But despite、uh, initial enthusiasm, it floundered a little more than two years later. And the study of its demise is actually quite interesting because it highlights the various ideological currents that clashed during the period, and especially how difficult it was to resist the sweeping trends of either popular agrarianism or Bolshevik-influenced control structures. So. What I have stressed in this chapter is that the Nomin Jijikai was a singular experiment, one that tried to distance itself from these two dominant trends. And in the midst of the wave of ideological and organizational fever in the 1920s,、uh, however, Ishikawa's project struggled to gain traction. The danger was always of being subsumed into either a hardline Marxist or nationalist framework. And it is precisely along those lines that tensions emerged among the leaders of the project, and that is what precipitated its failure. Ishikawa's experience of plowing the fields was only incidental, so he sympathized with the farming community, but only saw things from the standpoint of a city intellectual. And this was in contrast to someone like one of the other founders of the Jichikai, someone called、uh, Shibuya Teske, who was a farmer from Saitama. And could he himself only rely on his farming activities to make ends meet? So Shibuya brought with him the experience of rural oppression and hardships, and he became suspicious of those like Ishikawa who felt entitled to talk about farming without having been by birth forced to rely on it. So Shibuya Tetsuke eventually left the Jichikai in order to join hardline Marxist-influenced activism. In his mind, only mass and organized action would help bring about the change in his condition. The appeal of communist ideology had won over small-scale anarchist experiments. In this case, another founder,、uh, Shimonaka Yasabudo, 
left the Jijikai and betrayed its principles by choosing to support the growing trend of emperor-centered popular agrarianism that gradually shaped activism in the countryside. As we know, popular agrarianism would inspire in the early 1930s violent and politically destabilizing events, such as the League of Blood incident. And Shimonaka's view, while not condoning violence, were clearly in favor of strong-arm nationalist uh, tactics. Like Shibuya Teske, the lure of a strong organizational apparatus led him to dismiss the principles of independence of the Jichikai. So the Jichikai was not built to last in the era, but for a short period it provided a template for farmers' autonomy and self-respect, one that could have perhaps been so, I'd say, restorative in the context of the 1920s, and it was sadly buried by increasing left-wing and right-wing radicalism in the countryside. Yeah, um, it's fascinating to also read in your book that Ishikawa's insistence on this standing on the earth or this kind of domain lifestyle um, also engaged with a temporality that's different. So they have this geographical imagination, but also they're living in a different temporality that is alternative to the accelerations of capitalist developments and also the linear temporality of scientific and social Darwinism. And this is discussed in chapter six of your book, The Ecology of Everyday Life. Uh, Can you tell us more about Ishikawa's temporality? How were they living and how do they feel time in, in addition to space? So if there's one thread or theme that sustained Ishikawa's anarchist critique throughout his life, it is his opposition to conceptions of historical development that in his mind devalued individual agency. So reading his works, I realized how much for him, this was almost like a gut feeling. He, he decried the historicist conception of human development that in his view was gripping Japan's collective mindset, the unquestioned, uh, unquestioned belief in linear progress that made people march, march um, blindly forward uh, and also, in his mind, leading states to war. And he said, um, and I quote, just marching had become the goal. So he considered that social Darwinism had become a dogma for his compatriots. Uh, and he saw capitalism as the acceptance of an accelerated time focused on speed and efficiency to the detriment of the understanding of the cycles of the everyday. And similarly, he denounced the Marxist view of history, another controlling dynamic that seemed to propose a supposedly inevitable process that would lead to revolution and the dictatorship of the proletariat. So when I talk about Ishikawa's alternative temporality, I refer to his attempts to counter the adherence of his contemporaries to such conceptions of linear linear historical development. And he did this in two ways. First, he offered alternative theoretical conceptions. You could say that he argued argued with Darwin and Darwinism, riding, by the way, the wave of the so-called eclipse of Darwinism, when scientists uh, sought to find other explanations for evolution uh, in the um, late 19th and early 20th century. And he put forward, for example, the ideas of French biologist and physiologist René Quinton, 
who in his studies of the appearance of species in the animal world emphasized the constancy of certain external conditions rather than the changing characteristics of a species due to adaptation. In fact, Ishikawa was much influenced by anti-Darwinist thought popular in France at the time. Uh, and since he stayed in France, uh, it was a direct influence probably. But uh, subsequent studies have found that Canton's finding were anyway not that contrary to Darwinian principles. It was just a different way of approaching the problem. Um, Ishikawa's other conviction was that the only way for men and women to escape the totalizing dynamic of capitalist development and linear progress was to maintain a physical engagement with the land. And the realization of being here and there, what I have called standing on the earth, was fundamental if one wanted to avoid the trappings of modern time. And I'm not saying modern times, I'm saying modern time. And I think that this was much more than a nostalgic return to ancient ways or, for example, to a return to the harmony of the village community, which anarchism has sometimes encouraged. It was rather a warning about the dangers of a blind march to progress, a warning, in fact, that proved well-founded. If we consider this from a broader perspective, standing on the earth suggested that equal attention should be paid in everyday life to place, uh, to human interaction with the physical environment, as well as to time. Mm. Yeah, and another fascinating point that you make in this chapter is that Ishikawa's belief in this interconnectedness of all things, of between all people, and also his philosophy that these organic relationships should serve as the template for the organizations of human affairs, um, actually found resonance in Buddhist thoughts, right? So in chapter five, you also talked about how both Ishikawa and the poets uh, Miyazawa Kenji referred to Buddhist understandings of the universe to support their views. Um, and at the same time, Ishikawa was, was a Christian, right? And Christianity also played critical roles in the anarchist movement, of modern Japan, many socialists were also Christians. Uh, what was the role of religion then in Ishikawa's anarchism and activism? Well, that's a, a great question. But as we know, traditionally, anarchism and the belief in God are antithetical. So we may not expect to encounter much in terms of religion when exploring anarchist thought. But I found that Ishikawa and the people he associated with were deeply concerned with religious issues, even when they, like him, had renounced institutional ties to religious organizations. For one thing, I found that Buddhist worldview and vocabulary were integral parts of Ishikawa's philosophical writings. In many instances, he referred to, for example, reincarnation, linne, or the uh, impermanence of things or to cosmic notions of the universe that were directly drawn from Buddhism. In fact, anarchism and Buddhism uh, in some of its forms are quite compatible. For example, the idea that there is no godhead or central organizing principle in the universe and hence we should not presume one in socio-political organization. But I was also struck by the kinds of conversations that took place amongst activists, as reflected in the correspondence exchanged between them. 
one of uh, Ishikawa's friends was the Buddhist monk Uchiyama Gudo, an anarchist sympathizer who cared deeply about the poor and the peasantry, and who became one of the victims of the high treason incident um, in 1911. And in his letters, he talked about Buddhism and Christianity, comparing the aloofness of Buddha about the real world to the personal investment of Jesus, for example. As a Buddhist, he was keen to praise the kind of dedication to the poor that he saw as a hallmark of, hallmark of Christianity. Uh, my point is that in order to understand the political inclinations of the late Meiji radicals, we should also consider to what extent religion and what kind of religion was part of the picture. So religion, whether Buddhism or Christianity or a combination of the two, played a crucial role in anarchist activism during the late Meiji period and beyond. It was always there in the background, providing motivation, inspiration and validation, in fact. It's really fascinating to read this. Um, it's almost as if the the religion right, of Buddhism and also Christianity provided a different way of conceptualizing time and history, and, and that became a central part of their thoughts too. Um, so what was the state of Japanese anarchism in the years of total war? Um, this is, um, I understand not the central kind of exploration of your book, um, but you talked about how Ishikawa lived this domain seigatsu um, throughout the periods of the 1930s and into the 1940s. Um, so what was Japanese anarchists doing um, in the years of total war and total empire? And also, what was Ishikawa's thoughts on Japanese imperialism and colonialism? Do we know anything about this? Well, again, it's an interesting question because it touches upon the difference between a specific discourse on imperialism and colonialism on the one hand and action on the other. Um, Ishikawa had very strong anti-imperialist views. After all, he had been a close friend of Kotoku Shusui, who wrote in 1901 a seminal essay on imperialism called Imperialist Monster of the 20th, 20th Century. And in his own writings, Ishikawa denounced imperialism and the racial discrimination that went with it. He opposed the Russo-Japanese War in 1904. At the time of the First World War, he was very critical of the Japanese government for playing the imperialist game. He denounced the recent, recent annexation of Korea and suggested that Japan taking over German possessions on the Shandong Peninsula in China was no different from a thief taking advantage of a fire. In 1931, he denounced the invasion of Manchuria as another sign of Japan's willingness to play the imperialist game. This being said, it is true that by the time Japan invaded China proper in 1937, Ishikawa had become increasingly interested in China and Chinese history. He wrote about it extensively and, for example, in his three-volume series called 100 Lectures on the History of Oriental Culture, which he published in 1939, 41 and 42. Um, so in this three-volume, he, he he was showing his interest in the in the history of China as a scholar, but also he was far from encouraging Pan-Asianism. He saw in China the repository of a culture that for centuries had valued the human-nature relationship, one that Japan should heed or return to. And intriguingly, while condemning the Japanese interference in Chinese affairs, he also maintained a friendship with 
Wang Jingwei, the Kuomintang leader who favoured collaboration with Japan during the war. Ishikawa uh, met him for the last time in Nanjing in March 1941. And I, I think that Wang's fierce anti-communism struck a chord with Ishikawa, enough to convince him of the benefits of collaboration. Uh, for the record, Wang became a non-person in China after the war, in spite of the prominent role he played during the war as a Kuomintang leader. But it is fair to say that the friendship between the two men makes us question the coherence of Ishikawa's anti-imperialist views. Uh, I, I think even though I did say that Ishikawa was not forced to do um, ideological conversion like any many of his colleagues and, and you know fellow um, leftist writers, he still was a little bit ambiguous uh, uh, towards uh, during that period. So uh, it, it is a bit of a sensitive topic, I'd say. And it's interesting that immediately after hearing the news of Japan's surrender in 1945, um, Ishikawa wrote the Fushigi Sengen, which is the anarchist pro- uh, proclamation. However, it's, it's kind of intriguing to read in, in the last part of your book that he also explicitly expressed his support for the emperor in the post-war. So what does this tell us about Ishikawa's anarchist visions uh, after 1945? Well, as you say, it is indeed intriguing. This proclamation is intriguing. Uh, and certainly when taken at face value. Well, it has provided ammunition to critics who, after the war, claimed that no Japanese intellectual had been immune to ideological conversion after all. But I think that taken in context, it tells a slightly different story. What Ishikawa was really after was the establishment of a society free from state institutions. And for him, defeat and surrender offered a golden opportunity for Japan to rebuild itself under what he considered as anarchist principles of freedom, cooperation, and equality for all. And he saw that peace and the destruction of the old system of state authority had suddenly given people this priceless chance of a fresh uh, fresh start. And for Ishikawa, if the Japanese were not uh, now in a position to demand political and social harmony... It was, after all, down to the reigning emperor, whose declaration of unconditional surrender had opened up the possibility of renewal. Ishikawa described the emperor as siding with his people against the military and praised the fact that he accepted the humiliation of surrender for the sake of his people. Um, This stance, of course, is open to interpretation, but it should be noted that only when the monarch had officially been de-goded, uh, that is, that had officially renounced his supposed divine status, did Ishikawa offer his support. And by choosing to endorse the monarch just at a time when Japan's emperor center ideology had spectacularly crashed, he showed at least once again that he was a natural contrarian, uh, prepared to stick to his convictions, even if unconventional. My view is that there was always a dose of utopianism, even romanticism in Ishikawa's view, but that they also deserve attention for what they tell us about the kind of intellectual complexity someone like him had to navigate throughout his life. Mm. 
Thank you so much, um, Dr. Willems. We've learned a lot about uh, Ishikawa Sanshiro in your wonderful book. And I think um, I've taken up enough of your time already. Uh, but I do have one last question for you. Uh, what are you working on right now? What are some of the projects uh, that is currently um, that you're currently working on? And also, um, what would be one new book that you recommend to our listeners? Well, my new project is quite remote from anarchism. Um, I have started looking at a set of diaries, both written and pictorial diaries, left by a young recruit of the Japanese Imperial Army who was sent to Siberia in 1920. Uh, and these diaries give a very candid and visually striking account of the conflict, including the hardships of military life, the treatment of civilians, and the apparent lack of coherence, the army tactics. The Siberian intervention took place between 1918 and 1922, and originally Japan followed a request by Western Paris to intervene in the Russian civil war by supporting white Russian forces against Bolshevism, but it soon realized that participation in the conflict would also provide them with the opportunity to assert a sphere of influence in the region. In Japan today, however, the Siberian intervention is sometimes called the Forgotten War. Japanese forces retreated in 1922, two years after Western Paris had pulled out from the region, and they returned to Japan with no territorial gain uh, and no memory of glorious deeds. So the sources I'm looking at interest me from three different angles. Well, first, they give a voice to an individual rank-and-file soldier, soldier someone who was swept into war like a pawn by forces on which he had not the tiniest degree of control. And the diary form is one that I find particularly telling when considering this aspect. A second, this soldier's pictorial diary is quite unique, one of the only visual representation of the conflict that was not uh, either governed propaganda or photographic reportage. And I think that a visual perspective can always teach new things. And third, I'm interested in the concept of a forgotten war because it immediately begs the question of forgotten for whom? Well, not for the family of this soldier, for example, who is keen to see the diaries made available to a larger audience. So I, I, I want to explore these, these aspects. It seems to me that military history, gained for, from broader perspectives, it should be more in any case, than an account of winning and losing battles and associated strategies. As for recommending a book, well, it is particularly difficult to choose among the numerous top-notch scholarly books about Japan and East Asia that are coming out these days. But since I'm, taking, I'm talking about the Siberian intervention, I think that there is a very good case to make about uh, Tatiana Linkoeva's recent publication, Revolution Goes East, Imperial Japan and Soviet Communism. Uh, I think you have interviewed, I mean, she has been interviewed on this network before, but uh, Tatiana provides a fresh understanding of Japan's intervention into Siberia, and particularly what were Japan's fears and ambitions in the region during the period. And she outlines with new insights what kind of vision of the North Japanese leaders had in the interwar period. And I also have to say that she proposes a different reading of anarchism than the, the one I proposed through the figure of Ishikawa Sanshiro. She stresses, for example, the violent inclinations of some anarchist groups 
and the organizational structures of these groups. But her views on anarchism offer a real opportunity for debate on the topic. So I, I really think it's great. And I'm going to finish with uh, an, another book that I'm curious about because it's just come out and it's called My Heart Sutra, The World in 260 Characters by Frederick Schott. Uh, it's not so, a scholarly book as such, I'd say. It is Schott's personal take on this core Buddhist teaching as a message and worldview that are ubiquitous in Japan. But as an intellectual historian of modern Japan, I would never dismiss the religious angle to help us understand a people's history. So this is for me. Wow, thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Um, we're really looking forward to your new project on the Forgotten War. Um, it's definitely a very important topic, a very fascinating topic. And thank you for your recommendations. Yes, um, those books are definitely on my reading list as well. Um, as a Buddhist studies student, <laughs> thank you so much for recommending them. Well, thank you so much again for taking the time to speak with us and share uh, with us your insights from this wonderful new book that you published. Congratulations again, by the way. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And that this was a, a very interesting conversation. Uh, and um, thank you for the opportunity to spread the message <laughs> about this book. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. All right. Until next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.